because they don't have a lot of the subcutaneous fat. So they're what we call thin on the outside, fat on the inside. So, you know, we see these individuals and they look slender and they may be healthy or they may be unhealthy. We've really got to know their body composition. It really does seem with our therapeutic protocols that we do that the fasting makes a dramatic dent in that visceral fat right off the bat. So we fix the insulin resistance and we fix the PCOS first. Then we focus more on meal timing and nutrient density. Just got to show up and keep practicing every day. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I know this is a long-awaited episode. Megan Ramos is a legend in the intermittent fasting world. I have had so many requests to have her on the show. She's also good friends with my co-host, Cynthia, so I knew she was just a wonderful person overall, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If you are at all interested in intermittent fasting, this is the conversation for you, especially if you're a woman. We get into so many incredible topics. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Megan Ramos. That's M-E-G-A-N-R-A-M-O-S. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. You have a very good chance of winning. People do not take me up on this. And I often give away a full-size beauty counter product. More about that in a bit. So definitely check that out. If you are enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world if you could take a brief moment and write an iTunes review. It helps so much more than most people realize. Reviews are everything when it comes to building credibility and spreading awareness and just getting the content out there. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash guide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Megan Ramos. Hi friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I'm always really excited on this show when I get to interview somebody that I've been following for so, so long, and especially when they had a pivotal role in my own personal journey. So as you guys know, I am a huge fan of intermittent fasting. I also co-host the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Cynthia Thurlow. And way back in the day, because I've been doing that for so long, but there were really a few key figures that I followed to learn more about the intermittent fasting lifestyle. And one of the first people that I followed was Dr. Jason Fung, who I've also had on this show, actually not for an episode on fasting. It was for his book about cancer, which was fascinating. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But he did a lot of work with the fabulous Megan Ramos. I used to listen to, they had a podcast together back in the day that I used to listen to. And I've been following Megan's work for just so, so long. And she is actually the co-author with Jason on a book that came out in April 2020 called Life in the Fasting Lane, How to Make Intermittent Fasting a Lifestyle and Reap the Benefits of Weight Loss and Better Health. That book was equally fabulous and amazing. And I really, really wanted to interview Megan and was hoping it would manifest someday. And then our mutual friend, Cynthia Thurlow, offered to connect me to Megan. Actually, Megan, (laughs) Cynthia told me that her interview with you, I think has been one of her most popular episodes of like all time, which is incredible. So I was so excited to be connected and to have her here now for this conversation. So this is going to be great. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Melanie. I appreciate that intro. 
So I love your book, Life in the Fasting Lane, which I should mention is a New York Times bestseller. You share a lot about your personal story in that book. A lot of listeners are probably pretty familiar with you, but for those who are not, could you tell them a little bit about your personal journey? You have a really interesting experience with your own weight history, which might be a little bit different than some people's normal weight history journeys, and how you came to meet Jason, I'm super curious and doing what you're doing now. Just what led you to this? Yeah. It's so funny because I grew up an insanely private person and from an insanely private family. And now (laughs) I share all this information about myself and and my family to the to the masses. But I learned that I, I needed to because I was really young when I went through a lot of my health struggles, whereas a lot of the community that I served in the medical field were much older. And they didn't understand how how I could relate to them. And it said, you know, I, I might not have the years under my belt, but I have had just as many trials and tribulations you know, as people 20, 30, 40 years older than me. And I am sitting here in front of you today, happy and healthy and, you know, fit looking because I'm the light at the end of the tunnel. So even though I'm much younger than you, like there's hope because I started off exactly where you are, regardless of how much older you are than me. So my interest in preventative medicine started really young. My mom's got all these weird conditions like neurofibromatosis type two. She had cushions. Now she has Addison's. I, I, I grew up in hospitals because of my mom and, you know, and, and just really was able to recognize from like middle school that they were just treating all of her symptoms. Like no one was actually trying to help her, help her out with her disease or the root cause of her conditions. And when I was 15, I decided I want to go into medicine in some field, but I really want to be all about preventative medicine. Ironically, my dad had a, a very good friend who was director of this large nephrology. So large kidney disease program. And they're actually the largest clinical medical research department of any kind in North America. And it was just half an hour away from our home. And very ironically, his friend had two kids who both wanted to go to law school and be lawyers and had also decided that the same time I decided I wanted to go into preventative medicine. So my my dad arranged with his friends to do a kid swap. The friend's kids went to work at my dad's law firm and I went to work at this kidney program in the Scarborough area of Toronto. And And I was 15 and I was assigned to work with a young new nephrologist who had just joined the group. He was fresh out of his fellowship. And when nephrologists joined that group, they had to do several research projects to sort of indoctrinate them into the the community. And so I was a student assigned to this very young doctor named Jason Fung. So I was 15. I just turned 38 a couple of weeks ago. So we had a very long history working together. Yeah, so I love I love the focus on preventative medicine there, and I, I just stuck it out there throughout all my education and everything, and then I went to lead several studies there, you know, after I was done with school. But, you know, we were doing all of the traditional things, right? You know, follow the Canadian food guideline, calories in, calories out, eat a dozen times a day, now, <laughs> don't go two seconds without eating kind of advice. Like, we were giving all of this lifestyle advice, and, you know, it kind of broke my heart because we had one study where we had 2,800 patients sign up 
who had very, very mild kidney disease. And over 38% died before the study was over within three years from severe kidney disease. And I thought, my goodness, like everything we do, it seems like we're slowing up the progression of their disease, not slowing it down. Like we should almost be doing the opposite of everything that we do. And I became just really frazzled. You know, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have gone into law because I wouldn't have these emotional attachments you know, that you get to these patients. I mean, dialysis patients, you see three times a week. They're there for four to six hours at a time. They become your family. Study patients are coming in all of the time for blood work. They become, you know, family. And it was just heartbreaking because these people were literally passing away every day. It was bad news. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my life. But one thing I knew is I needed to take my own health more seriously. You know, I was 12 when I was diagnosed with fatty liver and 14 when I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. But for some reason, my BMI was always classified as underweight. And the doctors all told my parents not to stress. I would grow out of it. It didn't make sense that I had diseases of obesity when I wasn't obese. So it's just kind of some fluke. I remember a doctor at the hospital for sick kids in Toronto. It's a famous hospital saying this to my mom. It's just a fluke. She'll grow out of it. You don't change anything. She'll be fine. And so, you know, in retrospect now, I, I know I was, I had a very awful body composition. I was not strong. I used to break my bones all the time. I would be more tired and fatigued and things like gym class and sports than any of my friends. I wasn't very strong. And, you know, PE class was not, not my best subject, whereas I could rock the calculus or the biology classroom. It it was, you know, I was challenging from that aspect. But so I was this little, I was what we call tofi, thin on the outside, but fat on the inside. So I went undiagnosed with, you know, real metabolic syndrome for a very long time. So here I am in my mid twenties, my heart's broken over all these patients dying. Jason's, you know, approaching 40, his heart's broken over, you know, he's like all these people, they just have diabetes, right? And as a kidney doctor, the diabetes is killing the kidneys and there's not a damn thing I can do to help the kidneys. So I just monitor them till I give them the bad news, you know, that they need to go on the transplant list or get dialysis or both. So we were both heartbroken. And I thought, okay, Megan, you got this terrible family history. Like, you know, maybe if you start implementing these interventions that you're giving these patients of yours, if you, if you start inter- implementing them now, younger, at you know, at 26 years old, you'll have a better outcome than these patients. Well, I didn't. Just like our patients, I had a rapid decline. And in a year, I had gained over 60 pounds. And I, just before my 27th birthday, was diagnosed with diabetes. Mind you, it was kind of borderline. It was 6.4%. But I got the same spiel from my, my primary care. You know, you've got, you know, three months to lose some weight and bring this down or I'm going to put you on metformin and we're going to have the talk about insulin and blah, 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 blah. Like all of the, the, the conversation that I dread from watching people die from diabetes all around me as a career. So Jason and I were kind of going through our own little upheavals. And while I was working on implementing all these diabetes, dietary interventions that were leading to my demise, Jason was doing research and a friend had talked to him about fasting. She had started fasting after divorce for spiritual reasons, but notice all of this, all of these health benefits. And Jason and I worked in the most diverse city in the world, in the most diverse niche of, niche of that city. So we had patients that like 
20% of our patients participated in Ramadan every year. And it was always such a huge pain because we'd have to see them before Ramadan to adjust their medications because their blood pressure would go down, their blood sugars would go down. And then we'd have to see them again three weeks after Ramadan because their blood sugars and their blood pressures would be back up. So, you know, this is a huge light bulb conversation for Jason. And he went down, you know, the rabbit hole of you know, fasting and religious practices, because there's got to be more to it than spiritual beliefs if it's included in every, literally every religious practice. So Jason said to me, he's like, you've got to fast, you've got to fast. And I was a little overwhelmed. And then the next day, one of my colleagues came into our, our research facility and she said, you know, Dr. Fung's going around saying that you can cure type 2 diabetes through starvation. And all of the research coordinators started to laugh. But, you know, Jason would say things things out of the box here and there, but Jason was always right. And they were always very simple ideas. And he was always right. This point, I had worked with him for over a decade and you knew to not take his words lightly. So that same evening, I overheard him giving a talk to some of his patients about fasting. And I decided to sit in and watch and everything just made sense. Like I went through a whole range of emotions, anger at professors, anger at the government, anger at my very intelligent parents who should have figured this all out, anger about all of the disease that had been building up in my body. And then I felt true empowerment because I now know that I can fast and I can reverse my disease. So the clinic had been giving Jason a really hard time not letting him want to fast anybody because it was just crazy. He wanted to go after the insulin-dependent diabetics, and that's just crazy in mainstream medicine. But I wasn't a patient, and everybody had watched me get so sick, and then everybody got a chance to watch me get so much better. They couldn't stop me from fasting. They couldn't stop Jason from monitoring me. And then eventually all of our colleagues said, please post your blood work. Please, you know, share your updates. We want to know how much weight you've lost. Oh, my God, you've come back to life. And then finally, the director of our program, he called me in one day and he said, Megan, this patient's got like three months to lose 30 pounds or she's going to miss this opportunity she has for a transplant. He's like, I'm waving the white flag. You and Jason take her and do what you need to do so she can get this 30 pounds and her diabetes taken care of so she can get this transplant. And that was it. I went on a vacation for a couple of weeks and I came back and we started our fasting clinic in office in Toronto. And then prior to COVID, just you know, because of the boom and people out there really wanting to reverse their diabetes and the popularity of our books, we moved everything online. But that's, you know, so Jason and I co-founded our, our program, The Fasting Method. So we do coaching, small group one-on-one. We have a community. We do boot camps that we call master classes. Um, we're launching telemedicine later this year. So everything that you used to be able to get in our clinic in Toronto, you can now get online. And it's just been really crazy, you know, to see the boom in, in fasting since we started back in 2012. Wow, that was a riveting story. That is incredible. I'm super curious. You released the Life in the Fasting Lane April 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. How do you think that affected people being open to fasting? And I'm super curious if it affected book sales, like the timing of that. I'll tell you our publisher, who is Harper Wave and Harper Collins, they were not thrilled about the timing. <laughs> timing of the, the book release. I mean, that book was literally constructed in a, a few months. We 
we cleared a bunch of things to get that book out there. And it was really to help people lose weight before the summer. And then it took on a whole new meaning with COVID coming into play earlier that year. I think initially the book came out, I think the whole world shut down at some point in March for a few weeks. And initially, I think a lot of people that supported Jason and I went out and purchased the book. And that's why it made the New York Times bestseller list. But then there was a dry spell. And then what we saw was in the fall, book sales really start to to increase. And this sort of coincided with what we were hearing from people. So we saw, you know, March, April, most people in North America were locked down in some capacity. If you're in my native home of Toronto, you were locked down for two years. I left at some point to San Francisco, but it was a crazy time. And if you're in Canada, you heard the Canadian Dietitians Association telling you to eat no matter what when you were at home and that it was perfect okay to comfort eat on cake and potato chips and all of this stuff because it was better to eat than to not eat. That's literally what the Canadian Dietitians Association, that was advice they were giving. So we saw, I think all of these people, like they didn't know their businesses, their careers, their jobs. There's all of this stuff looming, right? Like the, the media was just nuts too. That wasn't helping. And then you, you're hearing from these organizations like eat, eat coffee cake all hours of the day. And, you know, cause it's better than, you know, not eating if you're feeling pressured or overwhelmed. So we saw a lot of people just not prioritize their health. And then like COVID lockdowns and whatnot, then they weren't going away or they weren't being radically reversed after a few weeks. So what we saw was a lot of people in the fall start to say, well, what the hell? Like this is not ending anytime soon and we've got to stop and we've got to undo this 30 pounds that we have gained since March. So we saw a lot of interest then in fasting in September. And I mean, that was reflected in, in our book sales as well. But I actually think it was the perfect book at the perfect time. Many people like who, who are listeners of this podcast podcast um, who are familiar with like all of Jason's writings I say this is probably not his most technical book and we definitely saw this in the Amazon reviews it certainly wasn't as deep in the science as the obesity code uh, diabetes code cancer code PCOS plan but this this book whatever was intended to be it was actually intended for a very new audience to you know because we would have all these people come to us and say you know how do I get gently get my sister, my cousin, my aunt, my brother, you know, to start doing this. And our friend Eve had this really interesting emotional journey with weight loss. And then she tried all of these crazy things. And then it resulted in um, a whole bunch of failures and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent until she reluctantly tried fasting and and it was kind of a miracle for her and she, I mean she went through divorces over her weight she went through all kinds of trauma she was on like Forbes top 10 list of females in marketing and she'd be ridiculed on stage with like the likes of Gary V because of her her weight and her appearance so there is this really emotional aspect that Jason and I wanted to share because you know the it's there's so many people out there just pointing fingers and you know, just sort of ridiculing people, you know, for like the, their weight, you know, it's a behavioral issue. It's a behavioral issue. Sure. There's behavioral components to it, but we're giving everybody such bad advice and then we're punishing them and making them belittling them, you know, for the bad advice that they're being given. So it's a, you know, we really felt for people with the emotional aspect of it. And it's like a, 
a younger woman, I felt all kinds of pressure to be a size two and to, you know, look a certain way all the time. And I couldn't imagine going through a life of what Eve did, but I would see it time and time again with the patients. And I had my own little taste of that too. So we wanted to share Eve's story, you know, to let people know that they're not the only ones that, you know, spouses are turning off the light at night because they don't want to see them naked because they're overweight, like all these things that she shares in the book, people don't talk about that. They, they just suffer in silence with the trauma of that. And then we wanted to explain why all of these different dietary interventions she used along the way didn't work and why fasting did work and then how you could fast and, and how you could fit it. Cause you can really fit it into any lifestyle. There's an, an infinite number of ways you can fast and still get results. So I thought that the, the, the book ended up having kind of an ironic timing because there was a lot of people losing their health insurance. There are a lot of people that were just desperate to lose weight that they had gained at the start of COVID and they didn't know where to start. There's a lot of emotions going on just because of the state of the world at the time too and everything became heightened. So I, you know, was, hey, here's this woman that I can really relate to and now I understand why all these things didn't work and now, hey, I have this tool that could help me lose this 30 pounds and that I gained during this lockdown and the 30 pounds I had gained before that and the 30 pounds that I never lost after giving birth. I know I thought it was interesting, interesting timing for sure. So it's not deep, deep in the science, but it's, it really kind of explains, you know, the emotional side, why things and the traditional means of weight loss don't work and why fasting does and what you can do about it. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I thought it was great because I mean, it's what people need as far as being super approachable and 
touching on all of these topics that I think are so important. And that was actually one of the most eye-opening parts of the book was something you just touched on now with the role of weight stigma and gender in society. And like you talked about how women tend to make more if they weigh less and men have higher salaries if they make more, which is just pretty shocking and a big issue. Okay. I, I still have, I have so many questions. Going back to your own journey and your experience, I was mentioning how you had a sort of a different weight experience. And what I was hinting at was what you talked about with being, you know, underweight and having metabolic syndrome, which eventually you did gain weight. I'm super curious, first of all, this concept of metabolic syndrome in people who don't look like it, who are not overweight. So like, why does that happen (laughs) with the fat cells and everything? And the second part of the question is you did end up gaining weight. And I'm, I'm super curious, was that a tipping point situation? Does the body hit a point where it finally decides to start making new fat cells to deal with the metabolic syndrome? Like, or had you significantly changed your diet when that happened? Yeah, I grew up with a a really sick mom and a very privileged home. So even if there was a home-cooked meal, if I didn't like it, I could order pizza. And then when mom was sick, it was eat whatever junk you want. (laughs) I was actually, I was 30 years old the first time I ate broccoli. So just to help listeners put put that into perspective. So like you, like you said, and I, I mentioned, I was very thin. I was classified as underweight by BMI, which just takes the, the number on the scale that's your weight and it puts it in the ratio of your height and punches out this calculation that determines whether you're obese or, or, or not. And mine was underweight, but there's this whole concept of weight and then body composition. So when you stand on the scale, it tells you your total weight. So that includes things like fat mass, water mass, bone mass, muscle mass, but it doesn't tell you how much of each of those things that you weigh. So it's, you know, it's kind of funny. I've been in in my adulthood, I've been 97 pounds and I have been morbidly obese because I had brittle bones and I had not very much muscle. So when I stood on that scale and it shone back to me, 97 pounds, I stand up five foot three. So at 97 pounds, I was mostly fat. I was tired. I was unhealthy. You know, I had fatty liver, PCOS issues then. And today I stand at 120 pounds, but I'm actually, you know, not obese at all. I'm much less obese than I was at 97 pounds because I have stronger bones. I have a lot more muscle mass and I have a lot less fat. And muscle is a lot more dense than body fat and bones, obviously, a lot more dense than body fat. So it's really about body composition. So that scale can be very, very tricky. So, you know, we see these individuals and they look slender and they may be healthy or they may be unhealthy. We've really got to know their body composition. But a lot of the times if they're unhealthy, you know, this is going to start to show up in their lab work pretty quickly. It's important to understand, you know, we have different types of fat in the body and genetics can sometimes play a role as to where that fat is stored. But, you know, for simplicity purposes, let's say we have visceral fat and we have subcutaneous fat. 
So subcutaneous fat lies underneath the skin, but above the abdominal cavity. So inside you have all of your organs and glands and intestines and everything. And then you've got this shield. If you want to think of it as like a a shield from a superhero type of movie, and that's called your abdominal cavity. And then there's the space between your abdominal cavity and and sort of your, your skin that, you know, covers your your belly. And subcutaneous fat primarily lives outside of that shield between the skin and the shield. So it's separated from your organs by this shield, by the abdominal cavity. So it's, you know, it's not able to infiltrate them and, and cause issues with them. It just kind of sits there. And this is, you know, the fat that we don't necessarily like when we're at the beach and we're trying to wear a bikini or trying to fit into a tiny dress or a nice suit. You know, we um, we don't like this fat because it's what society has, you know, typically labeled as, you know, un- unsexy. And we associate this type of fat to be the fat that comes with disease. And well, yes, you know, you could accumulate it, accumulate it and put enough strain on the body. It, it can lead to disease and, and to problems. But what's actually more dangerous is the visceral fat, not the subcutaneous fat. So the visceral fat, that's the fat that's, you know, is underneath that abdominal cavity, meaning that it can infiltrate inside your organs and wrap around your glands and your organs. And it's like putting headphones on your your organs because it prevents them from being able to hear signals that are being sent from other organs and other glands to do certain functions in the body. Or it will just so infiltrate them with fat that they're unable to function properly. So something that we all very commonly hear about these days is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And when you have an ultrasound done or a CT scan done that diagnoses this, you'll see phrases like mild, moderate, and severe fatty liver infiltration. So that's just how much of the liver, the gland has been infiltrated, you know, by fat. And we'll see things like this happen with pancreatic function. So we'll actually see tons of fatty pancreases now on CT scans and ultrasounds. And that was just really wild because I've been looking at these results since I was 15. Never. And then when I was like, 26, 27, I started to see these coming up on ultrasound and CT scan results. And then I saw a fatty spleen once. And I'm like, what the heck is a fatty spleen? And I'm calling radiology. I'm like, there's like a typo here. I'm like, this is a big typo. And it's not. So you you get this infiltration and then that really disrupts organ and gland functioning and communication that leads to a lot of disease and causes a ton of inflammation in the body as a result. So this is really scary. And these people are usually walking around thinking that they could afford to eat an extra cheeseburger because they don't have a lot of the subcutaneous fat. So they're what we call thin on the outside, fat on the inside. We hear from these people all of the time, you know, we're type two diabetic, we're not type one, but we don't understand. Jason and I, we had this one patient came in. She was very petite. She was like four foot 10 and she was like 88, 89 pounds, but she was all fat. 
And she was, you know, by body composition standard, she was morbidly obese. So, the, I mean, the idea was not to make her 50 pounds. And when I was 97 pounds, was not to make me 50 pounds, but it's to make sure that you've got a healthy body composition by shifting the ratios around less fat and more lean mass, more bone and muscle mass. And that's why, you know, at 120 pounds, I'm size two and I'm less obese than I was at 97 pounds. And I wore a bigger size at 97 pounds because I had more fat mass. So it's you know, body composition and, and body fats kind of a, a finicky thing. So sometimes genetics plays a, a plays a role in, in where you gain this fat. Sometimes there's you'll see you know, families where everybody's very slender, but they all have type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome. I mean, you'll see families that are all you know very perhaps overweight because they have a lot of subcutaneous fat, but they don't have heart disease. They don't have type 2 diabetes. And then you're really kind of unfortunate if you get a mixture of, of both the the visceral and, and the subcutaneous fat, because you know people with the that visible fat, they really feel awful about themselves because society has just set us up, you know, to feel that we must fit a perfect box all of the time. So there's these different types of fat, and they can sort of manifest in in, in different ways. But it's actually the those tofies that are they're at the highest risk for serious cardiovascular complications, serious diabetic complications. So they're the ones that really need to focus on adjusting their body composition the most. This is just so, so fascinating. And is this often the case in Asian populations, the reason that Asians are often thought to be thinner but struggle with metabolic syndrome? It partially is. And then it's also some of the different food types that they go through and the processing that has happened to those food types over the years. So like now, if you go to a lot of Asian countries today, everything's been so westernized and so processed differently that there is sort of just tons of like visual obesity as well, not necessarily tofies, but it's a lot of visceral fat that we see in more of these slender populations with type 2 diabetes. Okay. I don't know if you've thought about this before, if you have any thoughts on this. I'm wondering when you work with patients in the clinic, do you experience this whole concept of body weight set points? And and do you see people losing weight? Does it seem like their brain fights to maintain a certain you know body weight? And then the more granular question, the reason I thought of it is, so like that visceral fat versus that subcutaneous fat, do you think the body preferentially tries to maintain either of those? Like if you lose visceral fat, does the hypothalamus think, oh, we've got to replace that visceral fat compared to subcutaneous fat? Does it have that response? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I've never really thought about it until now. We've actually found that the body really targets that first. Like I, anyone who comes in with fatty liver disease. So you, you could be, say, 300 pounds over your desired weight. So we're, we're talking in, in need of serious weight loss and have fatty liver disease. And I can reverse, depending on how committed you are, say you're moderately committed, you're going to do 80% of you know what I say. You're not going to do 100% all of the time, but 70 to 80% of the time, you're going to listen to what I say in terms of nutrition and fasting. Well, in three to four months, you can totally eliminate fatty liver disease. Like I was diagnosed when I was 12. That, and I distinctly remember them telling my parents I would grow out of it because I was... 
I was old enough to know that this was serious and that my liver was important. So I, I paid attention and it never got better. My ALT, my enzymes, they were always, always, they weren't wild. They weren't terrible, but they were not good. And all my ultrasounds and CT scans on follow-up never got worse. They never got better. But as I got older, I just naturally started fasting all of the time, but I just ate like garbage when I did eat. So, I mean, there'd be days of exams where I would do one meal a day, but it would be an entire Domino's pizza. So, so it wasn't, you know, I, I was counteracting some of it with fasting, but I was not making my, giving myself enough space to get better during those times. But if people really sort of co- commit, you know, like I was 12 and in six months, less than six months, I had totally reversed that fatty liver disease that I could never reverse. So, you know, so someone who's 300 pounds overweight with metabolic disease, you can reverse your fatty liver in three to four months. You don't even need to do crazy fasting to do that. You can just follow your know, 24 hour, three times a week protocol, make some changes to your diet and voila, like your fatty livers, even moderate to severe fatty liver can be reversed in that time. So we found the body, you know, when in a fast state generally prefers to start, you know, eliminating that. So, I mean, our body's not always our friend. If it was, <laughs> there weren't the autoimmune conditions, but in general, our body, you know, sometimes does these things to help us out. And when we're fasting, really targeting that visceral fat. So like we'll see fatty pancreas improve very quickly too when someone starts to fast. I've only seen a couple fatty spleens, but we've seen a ton of things like fatty pancreas and that stuff all clears up quite quickly when someone starts to fast. So we know that the fasting is really targeting that visceral fat. And so it's going for the most disease fat first and and sort of getting rid of it. The subcutaneous fat and other fat, I mean, cortisol can play a role and estrogen dominance and other hormonal, sex hormonal imbalances can sometimes make that a little bit more challenging to lose. But it really does seem with our therapeutic protocols that we do that the fasting makes a dramatic dent in that visceral fat right off the bat. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like to answer that question that perhaps the brain does not, like the hypothalamus does not try to automatically replace the visceral fat compared to subcutaneous, which people aesthetically might want to lose. The body might be a little bit more resistant to burning that. That's very interesting. Super curious. So when you have fatty liver, how much actual fat is that or fatty spleen or fatty pancreas? Like, is there like a pound of fat in the liver or how much can it be? Well, everyone's livers can vary in size and even a mild amount of fat in the liver that's even just a couple of ounces can cause a lot of disruption. I think if you were to have a full pound of fat in the liver, uh, it would cause a tremendous amount of disruption. There'd probably be a lot of sclerosis (laughs) at that point, but I'm not quite sure how to exactly quantify that. Okay. I've always wondered that. I, I just, yeah, I was just super curious. Some other questions. So markers, I've wondered this for so long because I would listen to your work and Dr. Fung's work and you guys always talk about the clinic. I have a very vague picture of what that looks like. So what is it like actually working with these patients? Like how often do you see them? What blood work do you do? Do you coach them? What is that whole experience like? 
We're all online now, but our our online model is the exact same that it was in in clinic. Online just enables us to have a broader reach. We had a three-year wait list in clinic, but we're confined by clinic space and hours and insurance coverage and and stuff like that. So so it's now online. So it's a little bit different than going to the doctor's office, but it still functions the same. So typically, if someone was to sort of engage in all aspects of the practice. If they're an insulin-dependent diabetic for about three months, they're going to be seen weekly by their doctor and weekly by their health coach. When someone is a diabetic on oral medications only, they're seen every two weeks by the doctor until they're off of those medications. And they're also seen every two weeks, well, week to two weeks by their health coach, depending on how much support that they need. If someone is looking for for weight loss only, then they're typically seen by the telemedicine docs once a month. And then their amount of engagement with their health coach can vary from weekly to, to bi-weekly. The health coaches are there. The, the doctors in general make a, a prescribed fasting and, and nutritional recommendation. And the health coaches are there to help the individuals optimize that. Say, you know, Dr. Lee or Dr. Padaguana or um, if someone's working with me and I want the client to do a combination of three 24 to 42 hour fasts a week, which is not something uncommon that we want a client to work our way up to. The health coach would then help the client work their way up to that. So it might be starting off with, you know, 14 hour fast daily and slowly working to 24s and mixing in some longer fasts. And then the health coach helps troubleshoot the different side effects that they're having and the and the telemedicine doc helps troubleshoot medical side effects. So a medical side effect would be, you know, someone has a gout flare up when they start fasting, for example, that would have to be managed through through medications. So so they kind of split the, the duties on helping to manage the side effects. And then we offer, you know, group support as well, because not many people in our communities are actually doing this. You know, with COVID, it, being stuck at home a little bit more because I was in Toronto for the first year of the pandemic, you know, I was just, my unit was my husband and I, and we eat the same. And then we relocated to California during COVID. And a lot of our friends out here are very real food oriented and they all, you know, sort of work in Silicon Valley and they all, you know, do TRE and try to do, you know, a 24 hour fast once a week. So it was really cool. And then recently I had a birthday. Um, I've been going through some stuff this year and a bunch of my friends thought it would be great to fly down from Toronto. And I haven't really lived life with these people for like since 2019 because of COVID and our move. And I just couldn't believe the way that they ate. It was just kind of mind boggling to me. And I found myself, you know, reaching out to my team because it was just, you know, it was tough to watch people I care about eat in a certain way. You don't want to be preachy. You want your friends to, you know, enjoy their time with you, but you want to find a balance between helping them and leading by example. And then, you know, certain restaurants that was just total garbage, like fast food uh, where they wanted to stop. And it was just difficult. So, you know, 
we do a lot of these large group supports on various topics from diabetic to women and weight loss to people doing extended fasts to different dietary approaches. I truly don't necessarily agree with any one whole approach as long as it's a real food base. Like I've seen carnivore radically change somebody's life and I've seen carnivore not necessarily be the best dietary choice for some individual. And then there's someone like me who I would love to thrive off of it. <laughs> I would love to just be a carnivore, but it doesn't, it does not work for me or my hormones very, very well. So I you know through nutrigenomics testing and just knowing common sense by how I respond to foods, you know, still love my animal protein and my animal foods, but they're not the dominant part of my diet. So we offer all these different supports for these different types of dietary protocols. So there's a lot of group support, group engagement. We do challenges so people can do it together. I mean, I've always found this to be really cool in my household. My husband and I are doing kind of a unique protocol right now. And it's just so cool to be able to have someone that's doing the same thing to be able to check in with. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, our, our people that were going through this had those options too, where they didn't have to be doing this, this alone because they didn't have the good fortune of their household doing it with them as well. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. 
free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Well, first of all, happy late birthday. <laughs> so I, this is something I think about a lot, which is I, when it comes to diet and other people, I really, like, I don't want to try to convince anybody to do anything. And I just want people to live their lives. And, but it is hard, especially when you see, like you mentioned, friends and family engaging in eating habits that, you know, are probably just having a really detrimental effect on their health. And then the thing that really gets to me that makes me sad is like all of these Instagram and social media of moms with like their young kids and making all of these like desserts and treats and everything. And I'm, and I'm just like, ah, cause if, at least if you're an adult, you know, you're making the choices, but when we're young kids, like we're eating what we're fed. And so I, I think, I think there's a big issue there in society and I don't really know what the answer is. It's really tough this morning. Actually, I saw a friend of mine from home and her and her son were drinking this just horrendous sugar, icy concoction thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this kid has speech delay issues and learning delayed issues. And I'm like, what are you doing? But it really makes it tough. The social relationships are, you know, really, really difficult. I think, you know, what uh, a common friend that brought us together was Cynthia Turlow. And I mean, she's someone I've really been able to sort of lean on. Well, I've gone through some health stuff this year because I know she relates. She can get it. You know, it's not even just for the information. It's just for that mutual understanding because it can make it really difficult when people don't. And it's hard with kids. I think I noted that I was a really private person until recently, until the pandemic. uh, And we had life in the fasting lane coming out. And I I wanted people to read that book and not just think, you know, this, I look 10 years younger than I am. You know, those are the only good genes I inherited, but I know part of it's due to my lifestyle too, but I look younger than I am. And, uh, you know, I look quite healthy and I wanted people to really take me seriously. Like I've walked in your shoes. I know what it's like, you know, I'm not just some young healthy person making suggestions out of thin air. Like I've I've lived, I breathe this stuff personally, not just working with people. So I started telling my story on social media and really kind of opening up. Like I never wanted people to follow me on social media. Uh, And I, I didn't even use my real name for like most of my time on social media, but all of that changed in, uh, in 2020 because I'm like, no, like this book can help a lot of people and I need people to understand that I, I, I'm worthwhile listening to because I've been there. So I started sharing and actually it's amazing the number of friends that sort of distanced themselves from me when I started doing that. And in conversations, it was because, you know, fear judgment of about how I would look at what they're doing with their kids and how they just don't know what to do. And they're not also too busy and too unwell to even really figure out what to do. So it's very complicated, I think. That part makes me sad too, that second part, because I like that is the effect I would not want to have because I I do want to be accepting and I, I would never 
like it makes me really sad to think people would think if I'm judging them. So it's just such a complicated, you know, line. I'm curious, your husband, you mentioned in the book, when did you get married? We got married in 2016. Okay. And you mentioned that even at the wedding, I want to make sure it was you and not Eve. Didn't you use even like small plates at the wedding on purpose? It was a smaller wedding and we had small plates at this, got married at this sort of Spanish tapas steakhouse. So everything, all of the plates and everything was a little bit on the tinier side of thing. But that's the strategy that we have too, because my husband will eat whatever's on his plate. And this is something he picked up early on our relationship. And he realized that if he had a large plate, he'd eat everything. But if he had a smaller plate, he would eat, he would eat everything and he'd still be satisfied. So the the objective of finishing his plate and clearing it is what satisfied him. So he realized he didn't need as much food. So having small plates and doing that intentionally has been a big part of sort of our relationship and celebrations that we have with people and purchasing choices at Crate and Barrel whenever we need new dishes. But yes, we had we had small plates and tapas and steak at our wedding. You mentioned something in the book about how I think when you were talking to the wedding planner or whoever it was, and they'd never really been asked to have smaller plates at the <laughs> at the wedding. I think it's so great. There's a lot of stuff in the book about just, you know, practically practical implementations you can make because I'm all about optimizing your environment to be in your favor. So for your husband, so does he do fasting with you at all or what is that like? <laughs> so it's so funny. I met my husband at an engagement party in Orlando. I was living in Toronto and he was living in San Francisco. And then he was just very persistent. So, you know, next thing I knew I was in a long distance relationship. And then the next thing I was engaged because the long distance relationship was nuts. And, you know, we got, we got married a year after our first date, 13 months after our first date rather. So everything happened pretty quickly. And for the, for the first few months of our relationship, you know, I only saw him like every other week, right? I would go to San Francisco, he'd come to Toronto. I didn't have clinics Thursday afternoon or Friday. So it made it more easy for me to me to come and, and us to be able to maintain a long distance relationship. That and American Express travel points. <laughs> so we were so we saw each other and yeah, it was pretty easy to kind of hide my fasting and my diet when we ate together. He did notice even on our first date that I didn't shy away from eating fatty foods. And he he commented on that, that he thought it was pretty cool because I think he thought, you know, getting a serious female companion or partner meant that he was going to have to say goodbye to butter. But uh, he commented and then finally, like, things were happening. Like the, the obesity code, we were going through edits for that. It was going to come out. <laughs> and we, like, I, uh, I said to him, okay, like, I, I need to explain to you more about what I also do for for a living because I was also doing nephrology still at that point too I was kind of 50 50 split because we just you know it wasn't really till the obesity code came out that things started to go absolutely insane and we suddenly had a two three year wait list but my husband's a scientist and he's also the youngest child so I think the combination of both can make him a very rebellious person so he loved this idea right away off 
off the cuff, you know, without even looking at it, that maybe, you know, things were wrong. And, you know, he had struggled with weight after grad school and he just didn't think it should have been as difficult because he was doing all of the, all of the right things. And he was just so quick to regain the weight. He went on our website and like devoured our blog. And then I um, gave him like an advanced copy of the obesity code. It wasn't the final edit, but it was one we were allowed to circulate to certain people. And that was it. He, he was like this makes perfect sense. So his, his rebellious nature made him curious and his scientists made it very easy for him to understand. And he began implementing it. And actually, you know, before we got married, he lost almost 40 pounds, which was very cool. So he was able to lose that post-grad school weight that he had been struggling with. It, it was just really neat. So we, we, depending on where we typically follow the same eating routine all of the time. Recently, we've been trying to conceive. He started working back in office and gained a little bit of weight after uh, sort of indulging and actually working with colleagues again in person and just eating out a little bit too much. So he's been doing more fasting than I have. But right now we're he's trying to gain some muscle mass after losing some weight. We're doing an interesting spin on the 24-hour protocol right now. Most people think of the 24-hour protocol as a, you would just pass from dinner last night to dinner tonight for approximately 24 hours. So you would, if t- today, you know, is your, the thick of your fasting day, you would skip breakfast and lunch. But because of him struggling a little bit with some things and my fertility journey and, and trying to get sort of the best of everything right now, because I'm recovering from some some bizarre side effects of taking berberine earlier this year and liver damage. So I'm trying to do some some fasting, but get in a ton of micronutrients. So we're doing this weird spin where we're eating two meals a day, but we're still getting in a 24-hour fast. So today is a breakfast and lunch day. Mind you, our breakfast is like two, three hours after we, we wake up and he's gone to the gym already. So breakfast and lunch, and tomorrow we'll do lunch and dinner. Then we'll do breakfast and lunch and then lunch and dinner, breakfast and lunch and then lunch and dinner. So I'm still getting in all of the nutrients. I think now I need them more than ever after being so sick with, with acute liver failure for six weeks. So getting in all of those micronutrients, but still getting in some really therapeutic fasting time to boost my mitochondrial health and just to help, you know, with the recovery from the liver issues. So that's a, it's a protocol. I haven't actually worked with a client before. And I was actually trying to help my husband out and try to figure out his weight training. And he was just becoming, you get to a point sometimes in maintenance, we often see with people where they don't really eat, but they don't really fast. And it's not necessarily disordered, but the body, you know, ends up becoming a bit deficient. And, uh, you know, I can start to tell his adrenals are getting pretty taxed. So we're just trying to make sure he's getting an adequate protein with everything that he's doing, but he's still getting in some fasting, still getting in, you know, that human growth hormone that's going to help him gain lean mass too. So this is the protocol we're trying. So it's it's, uh, it, it's my husband's second week starting today. He did it last week, and it's my first week trying it out. So we often sync up in our household on our plans. I was super curious about how you met him and how you handled all of that with your eating because I was wondering if it was going to be similar to me because I just find it so funny that I've been doing intermittent fasting for so long. I have you know, a top iTunes show called the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And still, 
when I meet people, I am nervous about bringing it up. Not as much as I used to be. It's like you have to ease in (laughs) until they find out. (laughs) They like find out what you do with your diet and lifestyle choices. So how long were you dating him before you gave him the obesity code, Galley? It was... It was um, our sixth date and it, we were about three and a half months in because we couldn't, we couldn't see each other all the time. So we'd have these three to four day long dates periodically. This date, he said, you know, like, I, I don't expect you to move to California. He's like, I'm perfectly fine moving to Toronto. I know all of your families there. You keep talking about this interesting side project that you're doing at the clinic. I had told him like, I didn't, I didn't want to drink it. So I wasn't going to go into it too much. He said, obviously, you know, you're really passionate to see where this goes. You know, hopefully one day we uh, will talk about it a bit more. And he's like, but like, you know, I, I just, feel that we should you should know that I'm really committed and I'm like I don't want you to end this relationship because you don't want to move to San Francisco I want you to know that I will move to to Gigerano and it was just so funny and I was like well about that side project I'm doing and so I explained to him you know my health journey and our experience at the clinic and you know, sort of Jason's findings and and what we started to do with patients. And it was so funny because he's a medicinal chemist by trade. And he was working at a pharmaceutical company on a drug for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And they were getting shot down left, right, and center. Like they, like this, it was disastrous. Like there's no medicine, pharmaceuticals out there for fatty liver disease. Everything dies in like phase one or phase two trials. So he had a different type of understanding of this process. And he was just so uniquely intrigued. And he grew up in a Puerto Rican household and he grew up with an avocado tree in his backyard in central Florida. So, I mean, he, you know, grew up eating things like tons of pork and pork fat and avocados and you know they didn't have money growing up there was a single single mother you know household his dad wasn't there two young boys that she had to feed so like everything was home cooked home cooked home cooked they didn't have the luxury that I did of not liking what was for dinner and ordering from pizza you know uh, pizza hut or Domino's or McDonald's those were not luxuries to them so my husband said you know growing up we were always super slender very healthy But when he went off to grad school and he had more money from grants and scholarships and he started partaking and, you know, wing night and all all of the beers of Eugene, Oregon, because that's where he went to grad school, he very easily started to pack on the pounds. So, you know, he ate all of these healthy fats. He'd eat half a dozen eggs for breakfast, you know, as a teenage boy growing up, but he wouldn't eat any of this junk. So he was really intrigued, the whole, you know, insulin hypothesis and and meal timing aspect of things. They didn't grow up with snack foods at home because they couldn't afford them. And then when he got into university and grad school and started snacking all the time, you know, the weight really started creeping up. So a lot of this made sense, you know, not just from his scientific standpoint or mind perspective, it made sense from his own personal experience with his weight gain journey too. So another question, you're currently working on the fertility treatment and and everything for, you know, hopefully conceiving kids. And we get so many questions about this on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast fasting and women, there are so many misconceptions. You know, will it hurt fertility? Will it help fertility? How should you handle fertility? 
So what have you found in the clinic and with yourself as far as fasting and females? Is it dangerous at all? Can women fast daily? So many, there's so much fear. There's so many crazy things out there from so many people that have never fasted a woman in their life. And it's so bizarre what I read online. Yeah, like uh, we've worked with over 40,000 people worldwide at this point with about 70% of them being females, ranging in all different age groups. And we have one colleague, Dr. Nadia Padaguana. She co-authored the PCOS plan with Jason. I mean, joke, she's our baby whisperer. And what we do, you know, when it comes to fertility and a lot of these younger women with PCOS or even, you know, sort of middle-aged women, I'm (laughs) a middle-aged woman. My young husband uh, had a do the math on that the other day um, <laughs> when, I, when I when I declare that, but that are looking to conceive that have PCOS. You know, we treat the PCOS first. So with them, you know, we do pretty uh, advanced therapeutic fasting protocols. So, you know, sort of three 24 to 42 hour fasts a week or two 48 hour fasts a week. And we'll do this for about six months. And we find it, even if a woman does have a bit of a regular period, that it will be irregular for about three or four months, but that's a good sign that it's working. And then by about six months, everything starts to starts to normalize. And then the PMS symptoms and everything are gone. And for women who don't have a regular period, usually within about four to six months, they start to have a a very regular predictable cycle. I have this one young woman in the clinic. She's 21. Your typical 21-year-old, right? She's she's a great young woman. I'm mean, still in touch. But her mom dragged her in. And she's like, my daughter doesn't want kids now, but she's going to want to, to have the option in 10 years from now. So I don't want her stupid... <laughs> Or her stupidness to haunt her, haunt her at that point. I want her to have options. And she hasn't had a period in two years. So the mom left, left the room and the daughter said, listen, like I work at McDonald's. I'm a college student. I live off of loans and government support. I'm not going out and buying a bunch of fancy food. And she's like, I have to work 40 hours a week while going to school. So I don't have time to cook fancy food or cook any food. And I get free food at work. So I said, okay. So we shook on a fasting protocol for her. And I wasn't going to bug her about her eating, but she couldn't snack. On her eating days, she could only eat in two 60-minute windows, 60 to 90-minute windows, and that was it. So she could eat, say, from 12 to 1.30 and, say, from 5 to 6.30, but she couldn't eat in between. And if she did this fasting protocol, I wouldn't bug her about any food. Three months later, she had her first period. And then she's had, like, she's now in her her mid-20s, and and we connect all the time. I think she just turned 27. She's had regular periods since, and now she's all into optimizing her diet. And and, uh, it's really kind of evolved, and she's grateful for the choices that she's made. So we do these more intensive protocols in women to fix the insulin issues. So PCOS is largely insulin-driven problem. So we fix the insulin resistance and we fix the PCOS first with these women. And then once that issue has been rectified, then we focus more on meal timing and nutrient density with these women as they go into, you know, trying to conceive. So that's sort of our, you know, our, our general approach, you know, doing a P24 hour fast here and there is perfectly fine. Doing the longer odd fast or longer fast is also not going to be problematic. But what was so funny years ago, 
There is this slew of women that started having fraternal twins after doing a longer fast. And I just never really dot, like connected the dots and neither did Jason. Why would they start suddenly having twins? And they no family history of twins, always fraternal twins. And it just kind of seemed bizarre. We all figured, oh, there's got to be some family history of twins that, that they don't know about. We had no rhyme or reason for it. But now that I'm going through some fertility stuff because I've been having issues since the liver reaction to berberine earlier this year and just realizing like I'm, a, I'm about to start my second round of IVF to, to make some embryos and this time they're, they're putting me on human growth hormone and I didn't really put together the dots so we got the, we got the email from the clinic of what my meds were going to be and the then the email from the pharmacy with the costs. And so the human growth hormone, of course, is crazy expensive. And my husband just turned to me and he's like, can't you just do a five-day fast and we, we can save, you know, <laughs> $3,000 here? And I just started to laugh. And I was like, oh, for ovarian stimulation. And so I'm like, all these women are doing five-day fasts and producing all this human growth hormone and, and stimulating their ovaries at the right time in their cycle. And they're producing multiple mature eggs. And that's why they end up that we have all of these like twins in the the keto fasting communities. It's kind of kind of neat and it put the dots together until my own experience with this now and my husband's quirky joke. Because he'd rather that money go towards his sports car fund than uh than, <laughs> than human growth hormone. So it's uh anyways it it was kind of kind of funny. So but usually once we reverse the insulin issues then we just really focus on the the nutrients. So what we have what we're dealing with, especially like in the PCOS generation, is we have a combination of women being extremely overnourished and malnourished at the same time. So they're overnourished in the sense that they have tons of fat, tons of stored food fuel, but none of that fat or none of the foods that, you know, they, they consumed that raise their insulin and, and cause the fat storage were nutrient dense. In fact, they're very nutrient depleting and causing other issues like leaky gut and you know gut dysbiosis and gastric issues like IBS that made it even more difficult to absorb whatever little nutrients were in those foods to start with. So we've got these people that are overnourished in the sense of body fat, but undernourished in the sense that they have all of these nutrient deficiencies. So nutrients, micronutrients are so important for, for egg quality and just for you know, fetal development. So what we'll do is we'll tackle the insulin we'll do pretty aggressive fasting and then you know once the pcos issue is resolved then we'll work more on meal timing and more on what their diet looks like and the micronutrients friends you guys know i love wine do you love wine i've done a lot of research on wine and i truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. 
I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I always assumed that twins was just a genetic thing or a chance thing, but there is literature on the actual number of eggs or or the setup or the human growth hormone and how that correlates to twins. Well, so not not exactly from a fasting perspective, but it's a very commonly used medication when women are going under IVF treatments. So the most common protocol is called the antagonistic protocol, and that doesn't require a human growth hormone. But usually for women 40 or older that are looking to try to conceive, the antagonist protocol works well for the younger PCOS women. So as a woman gets older, their ovaries need more stimulation. So I know I'm coming out of the tail end of (laughs) nearly dying from bloody berberine. And so my body, you know, I'm fighting with it to get healthy, to want to conceive. So my ovaries need a little bit of a cake in the butt because prior to my liver issue, I had tons of follicles all on my own without stimulation. And then I had the liver issue and my body's struggling to recover a bit. So, so if you're in an issue where you have decreased ovarian reserves and your, your ovaries are a little bit sluggish to respond for various reasons, but usually for women, it's just aging, they will give you human growth hormone to help help stimulate your ovaries so you produce more follicles and produce more mature follicles so you're going to get more eggs. So this is very common in IVF practices for women that are 40 and older or women with low ovarian reserves to take human growth hormone as part of their protocol. So like the one I'm, I'm referring to is the Lupron microdose flare protocol. And this one commonly uses human growth hormone for ovarian stimulation as was part of part of it with the Lupron for the ovarian stimulation. So there's tons in infertility research that shows if you give a woman human growth hormone, you're going to stim- simulate their ovaries, they're going to produce more follicles, which will, you know, likely produce more eggs and more eggs to be released. So, I mean, I'm, I'm taking, or I'm about to start taking this on Thursday to help my body produce more mature eggs. So when I do have my egg retrieval, you know, I'll have 20, 25 eggs for them to collect. So when we look at fasting, we produce a ton of human growth hormone when we're fasting, 19 hours, 22 hours, 24 hours, 29 hours, there's a spike. Like it continues to go through these intermittent cycles of spiking, you know, for a solid 72 hours. And then even after that, it stays relatively high and and stable in production. So you get a woman that's doing a five-day fast. I mean, it's 
kind of like taking human growth hormone injections for a week, like I'm about to start to do. It would definitely have an impact then on the ovaries. So just looking at regular research on infertility and IVF, there's tons of data to support, you know, the, the use of human growth hormones as a standard of care for stimulating ovaries and increasing the number of eggs that are being produced each cycle. So it's very interesting. I can never figure this out why. There was this one woman, I think she's gone off, she's done her PhD in, in nutrition, and I think she's now just a very busy mom, but chronic issues with infertility, IVF was never financially in the cards. She was just trying and struggling to lose weight. So we were at Low Carb Breckenridge, Jason had just spoke, and then he was doing a Q&A afterwards. You know, she went up and she gave him a really hard time about why she wasn't losing weight. He just, I think, was a little bit flabbergasted because she was really reaming into him. And he said, well, just do a five-day fast. So she went home and she did a five-day fast. And the month later, she had a positive pregnancy test. And, you know, nine months later, well, eight months later, she had twin boys who are fraternal twins. So, and then she's since gone on to have a third child. And she was, last time I chatted with her, she was actually going into doing research on this. But I think there's a strong connection. Anyways. There's tons of tons of literature to support human growth hormone and regular infertility for for stimulating ovaries and producing eggs. So it's just all really fascinating fascinating if you can do that with fasting. I have to ask you, the berberine, was that a unique experience for you or is that a concern for people taking berberine? So I never took it throughout my my history with metabolic issues, right? I had fatty liver, PCOS, none of them really got worse. And I suddenly gained weight, everything seemed to get worse. And then I developed type two diabetes. So, you know, I went from skinny fat to just fat inside and outside and had all of these diseases. And I was terrified. Like I, all I did was watch people I care about die day in and day out at the clinic. So, you know, talk, I was surrounded by motivation every workday and my workdays were long. So it made it really easy for me to be compliant as heck with it. And in six months, you know, I plowed through consistently and I, I reversed my condition and I, so I never took berberine throughout my own journey, but you learn about it and you see some compelling data on it and you hear other practitioners' results with it, working with patients, and you hear the patient's results. So it's something for years I recommended professionally. And then when my husband and I were trying to conceive, I wanted to be a mom since like before I could probably talk and express that I wanted to be a mom. You know, it, it's just, it, it's just, it's been my biggest want in life. So sometimes when we're so blinded by passion for things, we, we don't necessarily do things that make sense. I'm very healthy individual, usually. So there was really no need for me to take berberine to heighten my insulin sensitivity and to balance my sex hormones. You know, I was managing all of that very fine. Everything was pretty optimal. But this is my my biggest goal was to be a mom. And uh, I am very fortunate to be immersed in such a unique community uh, of wellness experts. And people said, well, it certainly wouldn't hurt to take berberine and inositol. And I had taken inositol here and there to help with some sleep, especially when I was bouncing back between Toronto and San Francisco during the early stages of my relationship with my husband. And I found that to be helpful. And I thought, you know what, it probably won't hurt. 
And about 10 days after I started taking just a, a low dose of berberine, I was taking 1,000 milligrams twice a day, which is sort of a standard dose for, for metabolic syndrome and metabolic maintenance and, and sleep. So I was taking it twice a day. About 10 days later, I thought I had food poisoning. And then the food poisoning didn't go away. Then I thought I had stomach flu and I thought I had maybe picked up like that Novo virus because I love to eat oysters. But actually we had been so busy and we'd been eating at home a ton and we hadn't been going out as much. And my husband said, we haven't had them unless it's like the world's longest delayed reaction for expressing symptoms to something. And then I just continued to get more and more sick. Now, the funny thing wise is, you know, during that time when if you've had food poisoning or the stomach flu, you know, your stomach's super sensitive and you can really not tolerate a lot. So, you know, here I am just like, I was actually just supposed, like we're just starting fertility stuff and I'm all obsessed with wanting to get my nutrient status just perfect, you know, the perfect amount of choline and this and that. I'm not letting myself fast very much or I'm trying not to. So I would eat things like a little bit of soft sweet potato here and there very stupidly. But because that's what I was eating, the only supplements I would take were then inositol and the berberine because I was having starchy foods while well, my stomach was upset. And then like, I've been sick for six weeks. I've been in and out of the hospital. No one could figure out what was wrong. My liver numbers were awful. It, it was just a massive, I, I surrendered and I just fasted. Like I actually went for 10 days without having anything, not even broth, just water and the occasional cup of tea here and there. And that was it. I lost like 14 pounds in two weeks at one point. It was just, uh, it was not, not good. But the only supplement that I was taking consistently, because I'd sneak in some of the starch here and there, was the berberine. But during those 14 days where I fasted, I didn't take any berberine because I wasn't eating. Or I wasn't taking any inositol because I wasn't eating. So I thought I had totally recovered. Then I started eating again, start taking those supplements, and sure enough, everything went to heck. So I had this brilliant functional doctor who helped me put the pieces of the puzzle together one day. And he's like, this is, this is berberine. And he's like, I don't, like, I've never seen this reaction before, but he's like, that's gotta be it. Cause you've taken inositol and you're fine. So then one day I just took berberine and no other supplements. And I, sure enough, I ended up being very sick and I ended up going back into the hospital with dehydration. So it was, it was just super wild. So we don't know exactly what happened, but once I literally threw out the berberine three days later, I was totally fine. A week later I ate a steak. Uh, and I was totally fine. My GI system had res like gone back to almost normal pretty quickly. It was pretty gnarly. So I was talking to Dr. James DiNicola Antonio, and he thinks he thinks that you know it could be due to a B a weird B one deficiency that he also you know shares on social media that he has. And I knew I had issues clearing some lactic acid because you know I would just have too much you know delayed onset muscle soreness compared to you know peers after working out. So I wonder, I'm not quite sure why. That is but the thing is my, my husband found this reddit thread where there's all these people that had the exact same reaction to me they're usually low carbers in the community that were trying to take berberine to help 
optimize things. About a week to two later, had this terrible GI reaction, all thought it was food poisoning, glenosomic flu. Then they started eating some of these soft starches like I did, but would continue to take the berberine. And then, you know, several weeks later, you know, they succumbed to the fact that it was likely the berberine stopped. And, and a week later, they were feeling fine and they could eat what they wanted. And it takes longer for the the body and everything to to recover on labs and and just recover from the stress and the trauma of it all that is really interesting so there's this there's tons of these reports online like my husband sent me this reddit thread and it was story after story after story and then i went online and i found all these forums of people talking about it and then i connected with a couple of other functional health practitioners and they said that they had seen this sometimes too but they can never really figure out why and then I was just recently chatting with Cynthia Turlow and she had just had a conversation with a colleague just about how, you know, it's just overused in the first place and that it does cause, you know, some some pretty intense gastric distress and but it's not as severe as as I experienced. So it was really wild, definitely a really wild uh, experience. So right as we were we were trying to do IVF out of luxury just so we could bank a bunch of embryos because I'm getting older and I don't want to be rushed to have kids. So we had already started the process when this had happened. So of course, under regular circumstances, you wouldn't be able to conceive when you're experiencing liver trauma and liver failure. So um, so our first round of IVF ended up just not being a worthwhile pursuit. But now I was able to start eating supplements and eating like a normal person again at some point in May. We're hoping for better luck this round of IVF. First of all, I am so, so sorry that you went through that experience. That sounds really awful. It's really interesting to hear it, especially because I'm a huge fan of berberine and I take it daily and I'm like going to produce a supplement version of it as well. I think that's so important for people to understand that, you know, with any supplement that you could have, you know, a reaction like that. So it's definitely something to keep in mind and be aware of. So again, so sorry. I shared it with my community too. And I said, I'm not like, I've seen it do some really awesome things, but it's just being aware that if you start to experience like a week later, some GI issues, maybe stop it. Don't, it, don't try to uh, try to push it. And just a reminder to always just introduce one new thing at a time. So I think I'm just that one fortunate, you know, one in 10 million in, in this particular case, or you know, one in a hundred thousand or whatever it is. But I mean, with everything, you know, the, Kit has the potential to, you know, sort of be harmful to the a particular individual. So it's just to approach things slowly and with caution, I think. Yes, definitely. And so when you have children or a child, which I'm sure you will, putting it out to the universe, have you thought about how you would handle raising him or her in this whole diet world and fasting world and food worlds? Like, what would you do as a mom? It's tough once they get to a certain age. I think before they go to school, you know, the you know, our goal and things that my husband and I have talked about is, you know, we love a vegetable garden and really getting kids into cooking. My parents never got me into cooking. Like cooking was always thought to be this dreaded chore in the house. And so, you know, obviously I, I heard this Edith Eggert quote, your kids don't do what you say, they do what you do. 
And I did what my parents did when it came to food. I dreaded cooking. I dreaded the whole experience of grocery shopping, but both my parents did. So just trying to, you know, do what I want them to do, like leading by example in our household. And, you know, my, my husband grew up having to cook a lot and having to eat at home a lot. And he's a chemist. So he loves, you know, cooking at home. It's his, his lab in the house. So sort of uh, monopolizing on, you know, his desire and, and everything I've learned and just trying to make it fun, like really including them, you know, making things really colorful, really tasty. And sort of that being their initial experience with food when I can control it. And then it's, of course, when they go to school. Like I was actually thinking this morning, I saw like the whole Capri Sun recall thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like people shouldn't be drinking that anyways, like let alone when it's got like cleaners that are improperly put into it. And they have to do this, this recall. And I thought, oh my gosh, like my kids going to friends' homes and my kids just even going to school and all of the snacks that they try to try to feed you at school we were actually in the UK in London visiting France and our friends kids at that time went to the same school as Prince William and Kate Middleton's oldest son and daughter and I guess they're they're very active parents so William was actually there dropping off little Prince George and Princess Charlotte so we're talking like this is not your you know your school that's you know sort of in this dark alley and you know a not very nice neighborhood I mean this is a very like the tuition was nuts like <laughs> tuition is more than my mortgage every year like it was just kind of nuts for for one student and so there's a good chance that most of these kids ate breakfast at home but as they were walking into school and my friend brought me because he wanted to show me what this experience was like. They're literally handing out juice boxes and slices of toast to these kids when they were walking into school. He said, everyone here is paying, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars for their kids to be here. Look at us. You know, I knew who he was. He's like, I mean, you know, we're parked behind Prince William. Like these kids have food at home. You know, we're not in uh, neighborhoods of poverty here. And they're already feeding our kids a second breakfast the moment they walk into school at 8 a.m., which is just just wild. So I'm nervous about that. So I think at that point, it's, you know, it's, I, I don't want to be too restrictive with them. They've, I think they've got to learn how to make their own choices and navigate. So set them up with a good foundation, you know, really celebrate and enjoy the art of cooking at home, teach them and see how they sort of respond when they go out there. I've admired sort of Will Cole's approach. I've watched him over the years and um, he's, his kids, uh, his son is older now and his son's ma has made a funny comment not that long ago I saw on Instagram where I guess Will was mad at him and his son said, dad, just be happy. The only thing I microdose is gluten. I wanted to sort of die laughing, but you know, Will said they made food fun at home for the kids and they taught them and then they let them go out there and make their own choices. But they realized when they did eat lots of sugar and did eat lots of, you know, processed junk food that they didn't feel good and that they wanted to feel good. So on their own, they started to make some wise decisions. So, so there's people like him who I really watch and, and kind of see what they do at home. And, you know, I think uh, Cynthia, our, our friend, she's got two boys and I think they're, they're quite healthy, successful young men. 
can. And I mean, obviously, her and her husband have done a great example of leading by example at home, eating well in and out of the household. So I think that's just going to be my approach. But it is definitely, uh, definitely a scary approach when I think of things like Halloween. And, you know, it's going to be tough to, to watch, you know, my kids have to sort of navigate through some of those experiences and you don't want to lock them up on Halloween and have them go trick-or-treating. Something Ben Bickman does on a holiday like Halloween because everyone around here is starting to get ready for it, even though it's still a few months away or a couple months away. As I, his kids were allowed to pick like one candy and then they were allowed to trade candies for other toys or other things, crafts that they were interested in. So him and his wife would have some things and I thought that was really neat. So I'm just trying to devour all of the approaches of these people <laughs> around me and and see, you know, how how we can help them make these decisions and you know find a find a lifestyle that's going to be healthy for them amongst who knows what the world's going to look like. I a uh, person I know, a friend from this area recently left a corporate barbecue because they only had like beyond meat burgers uh, at the corporate barbecue and they said well you the company said well everybody can eat these and they're like no I eat real food this is not real food so not everybody can eat these and they left so it's uh the world's going kind of weird even more so every day with food so we'll, we'll see what the universe is like once we have them and they're old enough I do think it's a little bit problematic because you don't want to enforce people to have to eat any certain way but it's frustrating because on the one hand, like I feel like there could be legalization around things that could have profound health effects. Like I know I had Dr. Robert Lustig on the show from Metabolical, and I know he would love to see regulation on fructose, for example. So it's like there's so much potential there, but then you don't want to force things on people. And then on the flip side, though, we get this stuff where stuff does get enforced, and I don't know that it's the best thing ever, like these meatless Mondays and stuff in schools and it's just it's just frustrating. <laughs> what I'm really hoping is I would love to see a book from you all about you could talk about like females fasting and fertility and then after you have kids like having kids like there's so much do you think you'll write another book in the future yeah I have a book coming out June next year that's sort of just geared a little bit more towards like women with type 2 diabetes and we do talk about PCOS but I just I felt a little bit as my first solo project talking about diabetes but I think I'm actually going to be launching a new website this fall And it's different from our fasting method stuff because we really focus a lot on type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. But I want to start sharing like with younger women sort of my experience with all of this fertility stuff and all of the things that I'm navigating as I'm trying to figure out breastfeeding and postpartum and recovery, which a lot is thyroid management, thyroid management, thyroid management, transitioning kids to foods. It's hard to find like a concrete resource out there. So that's, that's a project for sure that I want to, I want to tackle in the upcoming years. 
Oh, I love it. Well, hopefully I would love to have you back for the book that comes out in June. If you're down, that would be amazing. Well, this has been absolutely incredible. It's so wonderful to finally connect with you. I feel like I know you because I've just been following you for so long. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Something that I am grateful for is... I was just writing it sort of in my gratitude journal this morning is that I just know that I'm so capable of change. And that's what this journey has taught me with nutrition now. And so, you know, if we really practice something that we are capable of change and growth. So that's just something that I'm really grateful for. So if someone's out there is new to fasting or is thinking about doing this little lifestyle, just consider it a practice. You know, don't consider it necessarily a diet, just a practice. And if you just keep showing up and keep practicing little by little, it will cha- it will get easier and it will change your life and that you are capable of change. Like if I can make this impact in my health, then anybody can. I truly believe that. And if I can go from the diet of uh, McDonald's and Domino's that I had to the diet that I have today, anybody could do that. So I was thinking of it this morning because you know, with my fertility, this liver recovery has been a little bit difficult, but I know I'm capable of that of that change and something fasting's really taught me that I'm, I'm can be really be in the driver's seat. So, but you've just got to show up and keep practicing every day. Not sure if that makes sense. (laughs) I love that. And, And that's something I really love about you is you're just so empowering and so approachable and really are making all of this very practical to people. So you're having a profound effect on the world and I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing. And I'm super excited for all of your future stuff. How can listeners best follow your work? You said you have a new website coming out. Yeah, and everything will be linked from our our parent website, thefastingmethod.com. So anytime we've got a new book or if you're interested, we have a podcast called The Fasting Method Podcast, Jason's author website, where you'll get the information about new books he's got coming, links to my upcoming website about the fertility journey that I'm going to be sharing. You can find it all at thefastingmethod.com, as well as all of our social links uh, will be there too. Awesome. Well, for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And again, thank you just for all that you're doing and this fabulous conversation. And hopefully we can talk again in the future for one of your future books. <laughs> thank you. That'd be lovely. I really appreciate you having me on today, Melanie, and you know, happy fasting to everyone who's listening. Yes. Happy fasting. <laughs> Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.